you would please take out your copy of the scriptures and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 15. Second Samuel 15, let's uh, start our time by just reading the chapter in its entirety. So hear the word of the Lord. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? When he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron, but... Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him, and the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him, and all the Cherethites, and all the Pelethites, and all the six hundred Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us, since I go I know not where? Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, As the Lord lives and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, Go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. And Abiathar came up. And behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. 
Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you, a seer? Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Hamaz your son and Jonathan the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. But David went up to the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant, then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. Uh, brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, last week, you'll remember, we focused our attention on four characters we meet in this chapter, uh, two foes and two friends. Uh, the two foes, the two men who betray David and become his enemies in this chapter, well, there's David's son Absalom, he sows discord among the nation and eventually gains enough popular support to declare himself king in rebellion against his father. And then there's David's former counselor, Ahithophel, a once a close friend, a once a trusted advisor, but now happily attaching himself to the Absalom bandwagon. And really with Absalom's good looks, his charm, his charisma, right, everybody loves him. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. You combine that with Ahithophel's smarts. Remember that uh, his counsel was as if one consulted the word of God. Uh, like with those two guys as his enemies now, uh, things are looking really, really bad for David. But God, in his grace, at the seemingly exact time that those two men showed themselves to be David's enemies... Well, God also sends him two great friends. First, we have Ittai the Gittite, a foreigner who literally just showed up but now attaches himself to David in loyalty as the Lord lives as, and as my, as my Lord the King lives. Wherever my Lord the King shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. Incredible loyalty. And then there's Hushai the Archite, also seemingly coming out of nowhere, uh, he is the one who, in the chapters to come, will defeat the council of Ahithophel. So last week, our focus in chapter 15 was on these four men. Uh, two foes, two friends, Absalom, Ahithophel on one hand, Ittai and Hushai on the other. Uh, this week, I want us to look at the same chapter, but from a different angle. 
Uh, This time, I want to focus on David's response to everything that's going on. Because any way you slice it, even with the gracious gifts of Ittai and Hushai, well, this chapter still represents just a great trial in the life of David. His own son has betrayed him. His closest counselor has defected. The nation that once loved him has now left him too. The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And to top it all off, uh, he's now been driven into exile. He is out of the palace. He is away from the royal city of Jerusalem. He is now in the wilderness. And so people are betraying him left and right. The situation is spiraling out of control. Like this is a, a great affliction. A terrible ordeal. What Peter might refer to as a fiery trial. And so the question for us this morning is, how does a man, after God's own heart, how does he respond to such trials? Do such trials cause him to fall away and forsake his God? Or, again to use Peter's words, will the tested genuineness of his faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, result in praise and honor and glory to his God. If you know the God that David serves, if you know how he uses trials in the lives of his children to sanctify to them their deepest distress, right, to grow them, to refine them, to shape them, then you'll know it's the second answer. And so, Second Samuel chapter 15 this incredibly difficult season of David's life, we see David respond to these fiery trials over and over and over with a steadfast trust in the Lord. Where do we see that trust manifested? How do we see that trust manifested? Well, first notice how David trusts in God's sovereignty. Point number one, David trusts in God's sovereignty. So let's set the scene here. Uh, Absalom goes to Hebron. uh, That is not only his birthplace, but that also happens to be the place that his father was once declared king. And in Hebron, by his own authority, Absalom declares himself to be king. Now remember, Absalom has taken with him 200 of David's top officials. Uh, They have no idea what they're getting themselves into. Uh, I love how verse 11 puts it. They went in their innocence and knew nothing. But in David's eyes, right, from from an outside perspective, well, it sure does look like those 200 men are supporting Absalom. So David knows he's got to leave Jerusalem. Look at verse 14. Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword, uh, David realizes, given the strong support that Absalom seems to have, that if they stay in the city, not only are their lives in danger, but they're also putting the lives of all of the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the city itself at risk. And so he flees, just like he once had to flee from King Saul, but now under completely different circumstances. And with him come his servants, those who were loyal to him, like Anittai, the Gittite. But it's not just people who leave Jerusalem with David. There is also a very important object that leaves Jerusalem with David. Look at verse 24. 
Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. The Ark of the Covenant. Right? This is this wooden box overlaid with gold. It's about two and a half feet by two and a half feet by four and a half feet. So not particularly large, but it represented God's presence among his people back then. It's this ark that represents God's presence that's being brought out of Jerusalem under the instructions of the high priests Zadok and Abiathar. But seeing the ark of the covenant being mobilized in a battle, it's likely that that triggered a memory for David of reminding him of a story that we as readers of the books of Samuel are ourselves familiar with. Uh, turn back in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel 4, this is uh, before David was king, before Saul was king. This is like the early days of Samuel. The Israelites are under the spiritual leadership of really bad priests like Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Well, those Israelites are at war with the Philistines. Uh, they suffer an initial setback. And so the elders of Israel... They thought that it would be a good idea to bring the Ark of the Covenant with them into battle. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. What are they doing? They're being superstitious. They're treating the Ark like a good luck charm. In essence, they're trying to control God. They're trying to manipulate God into granting them the victory. But God's not going to have any of that. Instead, he just lets the Philistines take the ark from the Israelites, uh, marking one of the darkest days in Israel's history to that point. And so David sees the ark leaving Jerusalem. So that the ark might be with him in this impending civil war, And surely he remembered what his grandfathers once did under Hophni and Phinehas. Now what Abiathar and Zadok's motives are in bringing the ark out of Jerusalem in our chapter, like we don't know. It just doesn't say. Maybe they thought it would grant legitimacy to David's campaign in the eyes of all the people, seeing that the uh, ark that represents God's presence is with them. Or maybe they're thinking kind of like Hophni and Phinehas. They're treating the ark as a good luck charm. We don't know. But whatever their motives were, we know exactly where David's heart was with regard to the ark. David knows that the ark, like as an object in itself, the ark has no power. Rather, David knows that the power is found in the one represented by the ark, the sovereign God of the universe who ordains whatsoever shall come to pass. And so David refuses to even give off the appearance that his trust might be in the ark itself. And so he commands in verse 25 that the ark be brought back to the city. Send it back so that nobody could possibly mistake his actions for those of Hophni and Phinehas. David makes it very clear. His trust is not in the ark. His trust is in the sovereignty of God. Uh, Look at what it says in the second half of verse 25. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, like if I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, it doesn't matter if that ark is with us or the ark is not with us. He will bring me back. 
And if he brings me back, I'll see the ark again. I'll see the tabernacle again. But on the flip side, verse 26, if that's not God's sovereign will, like if instead it is God's will for me to spend the rest of my life in exile, outside of Jerusalem, away from the ark, well, David's going to be content in God's will. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Like if this is God's chastening hand for my sin, David says, like if this is how the Lord is going to bring it about, that the sword shall never depart from my house, well, behold, here I am. Let him do what seems good to him. So here's David, completely surrendering himself to God's will. Point number one, see David's trust in God's sovereignty. A trust that not only... God will do what God will do, but also that God will do what is good and what is right. Let him do what seems good to him, that David might take content with what he has sent. But now before we move on, I want you to notice that his great trust in God's sovereignty doesn't mean that David just sits back and does nothing the 10th century B.C. equivalent of let go and let God. David says, well, this is out of my control. Whether I come back to Jerusalem or I spend the rest of my life in exile, that's all under God's control. So what can I do? I'm just going to sit back here on the couch and eat Doritos and wait for God to do something. No, far from it. Look at how verses 25 and 26, those are two verses that show a complete trust and submission to the sovereignty of God. They're then directly followed by verses 27 and 28, in which David hatches up a bold and ingenious plan. Zadok, Abiathar, here's what I want you guys to do. I want you to bring the ark back into the city. Absalom's not going to suspect a thing. You are, after all, the high priest, like you belong in Jerusalem. You're going to be completely under the radar. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to keep your eyes peeled. I want you to have your ears to the ground. Like anything that happens, I want you to gather information on what Absalom's up to. And I will be waiting at the fords of the wilderness for your word. That's brilliant. But even more than the brilliance of the scheme... Take note that there is absolutely no contradiction between David's firm trust in the sovereignty of God and David's wise planning and decisive actions. And that's not an idea that's unique to this narrative in the Bible. Just consider that the same book of Proverbs that tells us to trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding also tells us that the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance and exhorts God's people to look to the ant in her wisdom and planning. That is, there is a trust in God's sovereignty that still plans diligently and wisely. And consider that the same Apostle Paul, he's all about a firm trust in the sovereignty of God, but he also spends a lot of ink in his letters just addressing practical, logistical matters, plans for gospel ministry. Now, any plans that we make must be subject to the ultimate sovereignty of God. 
like James reminds us, we ought to say, if the Lord wills, then we will live and do this or that. So Zadok and Abiathar, right? Like, here are your instructions, but perhaps it's God's will, after all of that, that I never return to Jerusalem. And if that's the case, God's will be done. But trusting in the sovereignty of God, that's not the same thing as being passive or lazy or lacking initiative. That is, trusting in the sovereignty of God should never preclude wise planning and decisive actions. Surely there's ways that you've seen this tension play out in your own life. Like you're trusting, you're trusting sovereign God that he will always provide But you're also responsibly and wisely taking the initiative to think through finances. And you're trusting that how your children will ultimately turn out is in the hands of a sovereign God. But at the same time, you are striving with all your might day in and day out to raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You're trusting, to tie it to our Sunday school series, that God the Holy Spirit is going to produce the fruit of the Spirit in his people, but at the same time you are, Second Peter 1, making every effort, making every effort to bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. Point number one, we see David's trust in God's sovereignty, but don't forget that it's a trust that doesn't eliminate his initiative in wise planning and decisive decision-making. How else do we see David's trust in God manifest itself? Well, point number two, we see David's trust in God through prayer. I want you to look at verse 31. Someone comes up to David. Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And we've already talked about why that's such terrible, bad news. Because Ahithophel, his, his counsel is like gold. Not only is David losing such a valuable counselor, but his enemy has just picked him up. It's like when the Red Sox sold Babe Ruth to the Yankees. Worst trade of all time. Not only because they lost the greatest baseball player of all time, but also because they gave him up to their enemies. But in that seemingly disastrous situation, because humanly speaking, Absalom has just gained Ahithophel like he is, humanly speaking, invincible. How could he possibly be defeated? What does David do? He knows, ultimately, that no matter how brilliant Ahithophel is, how perfect the counsel that he gives might be, well, at the end of the day, he is just a man. And as wise as Ahithophel is, He is still no match for the God of the universe. And so David turns to God and he offers up this prayer. Oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. But don't miss those really important three words before the prayer. And David said. And David said. On the heels of finding out this really bad news, and David said. Like in his most desperate time, the odds are stacked against him. Terrible news has come his way. David's reaction, his response, is to immediately, almost instinctively, turn to God in prayer. 
David was a man after God's own heart. And the Psalms make it very clear that he was a man of prayer. Constant, frequent, fervent prayer. And so he instinctively does the one thing he most needed to do in such a desperate situation. He casts his burden on the Lord. Point number two, we see David's trust in God through prayer. But friends, what about us? Like, even those of us who, who really do trust the Lord, those of us who regularly pray, well, how often is our initial reaction to a difficult situation or a fiery trial well, pretty much everything but to pray? We'll start thinking of pragmatic solutions. Ah, how can I fix this? Who, who do I know that can help me in this? How, how on earth am I going to get myself out of this jam? But David's example here in 2 Samuel 15 challenges us. Yeah, all that's great. But have you prayed? Have you fervently brought your burdens to the Lord? And David said... Now, this is not always going to be the case when God's people pray. But here, God is delighted to, like, immediately answer the prayer. Immediately answer David's prayer by sending this Hushai, the archite. But again, David is not just going to sit back and do nothing. He's got to trust in God and pray and we'll see what happens. Now, once again, his trust in the Lord is accompanied by wise planning and decisive actions. And so David sends Hushai to Jerusalem. Uh, Go to Absalom. Tell him that you're going to be his servant. And that would hopefully accomplish two ends. Number one, he could kind of join this super secret infiltration of moles in Absalom's camp. Join the little spy network with Abiathar and Zadok and, and their sons, right? Work with them, gather intel, and then send it back to me. But then number two, by being part of Absalom's inner circle and hopefully gaining his trust, then you will defeat for me the council of Ahithophel. We'll see how that plays out in the chapters to come. And point number two, we see David's trust in God through prayer. So how do we see David's trust in God manifest itself in this story? Number one, we've seen his trust in God's sovereignty. We've seen his, number two, trust in God through prayer. Number three, we see David's trust in God through sleep. And you might be thinking, what in the world does this chapter have anything to do with sleep? Well, technically speaking, This chapter does not make any mention of David's sleep at all. But this is where we need to remember that the Bible is not 66 separate individual books. Rather, the whole of the scriptures has one ultimate author, right? God, the Holy Spirit. And so the same Holy Spirit who superintended the writing of the books of Samuel has superintended the writing of the books of the Psalms. Turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 3. Psalm chapter 3, and you can start by looking at the heading there. It's a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Well, that places this psalm right in the middle of our chapter, 2 Samuel 15. 
And so picture David, like 2 Samuel 15 verse 30 describes him, uh, going up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot, his head covered. Right, It's that David who is now crying out to God in Psalm 3. Look at verses 1 and 2. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. And many, and many, and many. And look at what those many, many, many foes are saying about David. There is no salvation for him in his God. Not that God can't save him, but that God won't save David. Because God has forsaken David. And look at everything that David's done. Look at his adultery. Look at his murder. David, you can forget about all the promises that God has made to you. Because God has forsaken you, David. There is no salvation for you in your God. But oh, how these many, many, many foes, they just don't know David's God. Because David's God is one who neither leaves nor forsakes his children. One who has promised to be with his people to the end. One who brings to completion every good work that he begins in his elect. And so even when Ahithophel, his close friend, leaves him, uh, even when Absalom, his very own son, forsakes him, well, David knows that he can still trust his God. And so David trusts, and that's really what this psalm is about. Makes it a great companion to our outline this morning. Because you'll remember point number one, David's trust in God's sovereignty. Well, we see that in verse three. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Look at all these dangers that surround him. Well, David trusts that a sovereign God is his shield. And that with a sovereign God as his shield, like he's safe, no matter how many his enemies. And you'll remember point number two. Well, David's trust in God through prayer. Well, we see that in verse four. David says, I cried aloud to the Lord. He prays, he cries out in prayer, and he answered me from his holy hill. But where I really want to draw your attention to in this psalm is the somewhat surprising next two verses. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. I lay down and slept. Seriously? Like Absalom and his men are coming to get you. Your life is in danger. Ahithophel has just stabbed you in the back. Join forces with Absalom. Like what if someone else betrays you? Who can you trust, David? And it's not like he's at the Hilton, like Tempur-Pedic mattress and Egyptian cotton sheets, right? He is in the wilderness. He is in exile. But what does David do in the midst of all of that? He lay down and he slept. Point number three, we see David's trust in God through sleep. You see, sometimes, friends, a deep, abiding trust in God 
can express itself in something as seemingly simple as getting a really good night's sleep. I'm not going to get into a whole uh, theology of sleep right now. Uh, Some of you are like a PhD in the theology of sleep right now. You got to wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. There's many reasons, right? There's many reasons why uh, we might not be able to sleep. Some of them are medical, some of them are physical, some of them are circumstantial. Last night, like 2.30 in the morning, Adelie's crying her head off, right? There are many reasons why we might not be able to sleep, but, right, and here's our focus right now, but there are spiritual reasons that can prevent us from getting a good night's sleep. Have you ever laid awake at night? You're just too anxious. You're just too worried. You're, you're despondent. You're troubled, and you just can't sleep. With our children, right, it's the proverbial monster under the bed. Well, for us, the monster just takes on more sophisticated forms where you're just worried about your job. You're, you're anxious about the, the papers that are going to be waiting on your desk tomorrow morning. Or you're troubled, bigger picture, by the unfulfilled expectations of your life, disappointments. Or you're fearful about the future, whatever it might be. This is how Solomon puts it, Psalm 127. It is in vain that you rise up early and go, rest, go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. You can't sleep because you're eating the bread of anxious toil, but he gives to his beloved sleep. He gives to his beloved sleep because you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Some of you will be familiar with the name Nicholas Ridley. He was an English reformer who was put to death, basically, because he stood for the gospel. The story goes that on the night before he was burned at the stake, uh, his brother offered to come and just comfort him and and talk with him. Uh, But Ridley declined, saying, I intend, God willing, to go to bed and sleep as quietly tonight as I ever did. More of you will be familiar with the Apostle Peter. You'll know the story from Acts chapter 12, right? Herod imprisons him. He's going to put him to death. This is right on the heels of the Apostle James's execution. So his death is imminent. Of course, the angel eventually saves him, but his death is imminent. You know what Peter did on the night of his scheduled execution? Acts tells us Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. So what is it that allows Nicholas Ridley on the night before he was burned at the stake to expect to sleep soundly? What is it that allows the Apostle Peter on the night before his scheduled execution to sleep like a baby? What is it that allows David, while being hunted by Absalom and Ahithophel in the wilderness, to lay down and sleep? Well, for all three, it was a deep, abiding trust in God. That God would not leave nor forsake them. That God would be very much with them as they walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And ultimately, it was a, a trust in the gospel. Where the God had given his son to die on the cross for their sins. The gospel that David looked forward to and Ridley and Peter looked back on. 
a gospel that they had made their own by trusting God. And so they were prepared for death, prepared for eternity, prepared for anything, like nothing that happened in this life, whether it's martyrdom or death or being hunted down by Absalom, like anything could separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. They trusted that eternal life was theirs. And for all three men, that trust then expressed itself in their ability to sleep soundly, even in the midst of the most fiery of trials, even in the face of death. You see, sleep is, among other things, sleep is us acknowledging that God is God and we are not. The God will neither slumber nor sleep, but we very much need to. Sleep is us acknowledging that while there is always more that we can do, there's always more that we can do, but at the end of the day, our ultimate trust is not in what we do. It's in a trustworthy God himself. Like for David, his sleep on that night was a trust that for every wise measure of self-preservation that he could potentially take, and we've seen him take several in this chapter. But at the end of the day, right, whether he lives or dies is in God's hand. He is immortal until God's work for him is done. And so sleep is us obeying what Jesus commanded to not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. A sufficient for The day is its own trouble. To trust that what God said about himself in his word is true, that his mercies will be new in the morning. Sleep is us knowing, trusting, believing that there will come a day when we won't wake up, but that when we die, for those who have trusted in Christ, that's just our passage into eternal life in his presence. So let me just say that for any of you in this room who have not trusted in Christ, maybe, maybe this is exactly what keeps you up at night. Like, like this is why you can't sleep, because you know that you are going to spend an eternity somewhere. God has put eternity on your heart, but you don't know where you're going to be spending that forever. Well, let me invite you to Stick around after service today. I'm going to be doing a a detailed gospel presentation this afternoon in the side chapel. We'll start around 1 p.m. Like, if you want to know the gospel, if you want to know how you can be saved, if you want to know how you can be confident in Christ about your eternity, please do stick around for that. But for those of us who have trusted in Christ and thus have this deep trust in the Lord that he has granted to us, Well, then it's exactly like the proverb says in Proverbs 3.24. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. And so let me ask you, perhaps this is the first time you've ever heard this in a sermon, but how is your sleep? How has your sleep been? Does your lack of good sleep perhaps betray a lack of trust in God? Like, is it the bread of anxious toil that keeps you up at night? Is it anxiety about tomorrow, the future, uncertainties of life? Like, what will tomorrow bring? Or, you can see how this is all tied together. Or, are you trusting, point number one, in God's sovereignty? 
that he is not only in control, but that he is working everything for his glory and for your good. And so you can sleep soundly. Are you trusting in God through prayer? Point number two. Bringing your anxieties and your burdens to him. Those that might otherwise keep you up at night. You're casting them all on the Lord and trusting them to him. And therefore you can sleep soundly. How is your sleep? So what does it look like for a child of God to truly trust his God? 2 Samuel 15 certainly isn't exhaustive in answering that question, but it does present David as a very helpful example. And we see David's trust in God's sovereignty, and we see David's trust in God through his prayer, and we see David's trust in God through his sleep. And beloved, may God use this narrative, our study of this narrative, to increase our trust in him. Oh, Father, we love you and we do trust you. But we know that so often we fail to trust you as we should. And so we pray for grace. We pray that we might grow in this, that that might reflect itself in our confidence in your sovereignty that it might reflect itself in our prayer lives, and that it might reflect itself in something as simple as getting a good night's sleep. Father, you grant to your beloved sleep. And so we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.